Well, our text for today is from the book of Revelation, the second chapter. I'll be showing most of the verses on the screens this morning, but always I do encourage you to take a Bible if there's one near you, and you can open up. If you're using our church Bibles, Revelation chapter 2 is found on page 1,028, page 1,028, as we begin this seven-week series under the theme, Jesus Speaks. And as we begin this morning, I need to confess to you that this sermon is one that, at least initially, I did not want to preach. And that this text that is before us is one that, at least initially, I did not want to study and to proclaim. In fact, this entire series Jesus Speaks, this seven-week series, this whole series, as I was developing it, I was thinking about it, I was going back and forth and back and forth. Should we do this? Should we not do this? I don't know. I was under all this consternation. And before I tell you why I was so hesitant to preach these texts, let me tell you why we are. The last year and a half has, of course, been very difficult for everyone, for the world, for our nation, for schools, for businesses, and for churches. And there are a lot of churches that are in trouble during these times. In fact, I was on the phone just Thursday of this past week with a friend of mine who's a pastor, who's a leader within our denomination, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He does work with various districts. Our entire denomination is broken into 33 different geographical districts along the 50 states. We are in the Rocky Mountain District. That's Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico. There's over 180 Lutheran congregations that we are a part of in this district. But this pastor friend of mine was working working at another district, and he told me that the report and the findings that are coming out of this particular district was that somewhere between 20 to 30 of their congregations were not going to survive this pandemic. 20 to 30 congregations in one district of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod will not survive, whatever their problems were before. But the period in which we live right now is hurting them tremendously. And then there's us here at Our Father. Over the last year and a half, during a time of a global pandemic, we have welcomed in over 150 new members. And I see so many of you here today. As we ended our fiscal year, our ministry year in June, we were $181,000 above what we budgeted for offerings. That's God working through you and your generosity. We have wonderful lay leadership at this congregation, wonderful members in fellowship and love, a wonderful top-notch staff, a new director of worship. We are supremely and utterly blessed in this congregation. And lest we pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, how wonderful we are here at Our Father. I will tell you what my response as one of your pastors 
It is great humility and gratitude and thankfulness. And I don't know if you remember, if you've been here with us for a while, maybe you heard me some way say over the last year and a half that my prayer, my prayer has been that God would keep us healthy and strong for whatever he has in store for us when all of this is through. And this stuff isn't through. We're still in the midst of it. And yet we are healthy and we are strong. And so the question that's before us as a congregation is, God, what would you have us to do? You are blessing us tremendously, Lord. How can we respond? What should we do? Our mission and vision doesn't change, but where should we be going in the next three to five years? What would you have us do with all of the blessings? And before we start to get out our whiteboards and we start brainstorming and coming up all these great ideas and we put all this stuff down and this is where we're going, I think... The best thing that we can do as a church family together is to stop and to listen as Jesus speaks to us today. The New Testament is primarily filled, aside from the Gospels and the book of Acts, it's filled with letters written to churches of the first century. And those letters were written by church leaders, people who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, people like John and Peter and the Apostle Paul. And they wrote these letters to these churches of the first century. There is one place in the entire Bible, one place in the New Testament where there are real letters sent to real churches of the first century that were not written by those early apostles and church leaders. These are letters written by Jesus himself. Here in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Letters that Jesus wrote after his, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. This is around the year 96 AD. And the apostle John is imprisoned on an island called Patmos. If you can see the screens, it's the one that's off in the water there with a purple circle around it. That's where John is located in 96 AD. He's an elderly man at this point, the last of all the disciples. And Jesus brings these letters and this revelation to him to send to seven different churches of the ancient world, to a church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea. And you see those circled there on the map on the screen, what is modern-day Turkey. Seven different churches. Again, real letters to real churches of the day, 96 AD. And yet it is not by accident that Jesus chooses to send seven letters to seven churches. Seven is a hugely symbolic and important number throughout the Bible, and seven is especially symbolic in the book of Revelation. Seven is symbolic of completeness. Seven is symbolic of perfection. 
And so Jesus sending seven letters to the seven churches, real letters to real churches in their situation in 96 AD. And yet the point here is that these letters are also universal. This is Jesus writing a letter speaking to God's people, to Christians of all times and all places. This is Jesus writing a letter to you, to us. Dear members of our Father Lutheran Church, And as we think about why we are being blessed and what God is calling us to do, there is nothing better than us to spend time listening to what Jesus would say to us today. And some of you say, Pastor, that sounds wonderful. Jesus speaking, writing letters to us. He's going to communicate to us. This is exciting. We're blessed. Where we're going. Why were you hesitant? Why did you not want to preach this text or the rest of these seven letters from Jesus? I mean, what, what, why, why all the consternation, Pastor? Well, it's because of this. While most all of these letters, except for one, has a lot of praise and a lot of approval and a lot of rejoicing that Jesus is doing over his people, every single one of them contains rebuke and high, high challenge. These are difficult Letters. These are sometimes very difficult words of Jesus for us to hear. There is a lot of praise and invitation. There's a lot of challenge here. We have to remember as we begin that Jesus isn't challenging us and rebuking us because he just, you know, is just a big jerk or he's just a meanie. Why is Jesus, I mean, just the fact that he takes time to write a letter and communicate shows what? His love for us, his concern. He writes these things to us because he's so passionately in love with his bride, the church. And he not only loves you, but he likes you and he wants you to be with him. And that's why he is revealing these things to us. And also another aside before we get in to the letter today is to remember it is very easy to listen to these letters and some of these accusations and rebukes and the condemnation that's here and think, ah, I know the kind of Christian this is intended for. I know the kind of congregation that Jesus is talking to. No, 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 no. He's speaking to us and he's speaking to you because of his love, because he wants you. So our first letter, then, our text for today, is a letter that was written and sent to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, you've heard of the book of Ephesians. Ephesus was the second largest city of the day, somewhere between 250 to 300,000 people who lived in the city. It was sort of the ancient world's equivalent of New York City. It was a place of finance and commerce and business, very wealthy, very elite people. And there in the very center of the city of Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the Temple of Artemis. And it was a huge fertility cult and all the type of religious practices that go along with a fertility cult. But even more important than the temple of Artemis for our context here, 96 AD, Ephesus was a major center of what was called the imperial cult. That is the cult of the emperor. That is emperor worship. 
Domitian is the Roman emperor at this time, 96 AD, and him and some of the ones who followed before him were cultivating and indeed demanding, you should bow down and worship me, Domitian, as your Lord and as a God. And this is why John the Apostle is imprisoned in a Roman prison camp on Patmos, because he refused to bow down and worship Domitian as Lord and God because he could only worship Jesus Christ as his Lord and as his God. And this is the threat that the Christians are under in Ephesus. And so with that as a prolegomena, in the time that we have remaining, we'll get to just the essence and the heart of what Jesus wants to say to us today and we begin with verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, Christians in Ephesus, you know your stuff. You know your Bible. You know your theology. You know your catechism. You know the doctrines of the Christian church. So well do you know them that you're able to detect and to discern a false teacher from a true teacher, a false apostle, a false prophet from a true apostle and a true prophet. You know your Bible. You know your theology. You know your doctrine. This is awesome. And may I say, just as an aside, this indicates and shows us clearly that Jesus cares about sound doctrine. And Jesus cares about sound theology. Jesus is not interested at all when someone says, well, I know what the Bible says, but the God that I believe in would never say that. I know what the Bible says, but the God that I believe in would never do that. Jesus is not interested in the God that you believe in. Jesus is interested in the God who is real, the biblical God. Doctrine matters. We see this here. He's rejoicing. You know your stuff. There's a lot of praise here. And then verse 3. Verse 3, Jesus goes on to say, and I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And here Jesus is speaking about the persecution they were under. Again, the cult of the emperor, emperor worship, and these Christians are refusing to bow down and worship Domitian as Lord and as God. And Jesus says, I know. I know what you're going through. I'm there with you. I walk amongst you. And there's a tenderness and a kindness. And in fact, I, I see in this, there's such an intimate connection between Jesus and again, his bride, the church, between Jesus and individual Christians that when you suffer, he suffers. And when you are in pain, he is in pain. When you are grieving, his heart is grieving. So connected is Jesus to his people and to the church, I know, he says, I know. And he's rejoicing. But then, 
verse 4. Jesus says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Christians, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, Christians at Ephesus, you are standing firm. You are doing so great. I am so proud of you under this persecution. And I know and I understand you're doing so well. And Christians, you know your Bible and you know your theology and you have sound doctrine and you know your catechism and you know all of these wonderful things, but you no longer know me. You have a lot of information, you have a lot of data, you know what is right and you know what is wrong, but you no longer are seeking to know me. You know it in your head, but you've grown cold in your heart. You're not seeking a relationship with me. I ask you Christians, are you seeking Jesus? Do you want him? See, it's so easy. Perhaps this is what was going on here with the Ephesians. It's so easy for us to go to church and be Christians and be very religious in all sorts of ways because we want all the things that God can do for us. We want the power of Christ. We want the provision of Christ. We want the healing of Christ. We want the blessings of Christ in our life. But do we, do you want Christ? Because he knows you were designed and made. Your heart only works properly when it's connected to him. Not just what he can do for you, Do you want him? Because he goes on to say this in verse five. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, the lampstand symbolic of the churches themselves, a lampstand which shines the light of Christ into the world. And he says, look, if you don't want me, if you're not seeking me, if it's not about me, then I'm going to remove me, myself, from your presence. I will remove the lampstand. If you really are not seeking me or wanting me or desiring to know me and my love for you, then I will no longer be with you. And if that troubles you, if that disturbs you, good. You say, I don't want to lose Jesus. And Jesus says back to you, I don't want to lose you. Jesus isn't saying this because he's a jerk in heaven or he's mean. He's saying this because he is so passionately in love with you and he likes you and he wants you to be with him. He's saying, it's me, turn to me, don't forget about me. 
And he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Put it in your mind, repeat it over and over and over again where you have fallen. Remember what you've lost. In other words, remember who I am and remember what I have done for you. That is the key. When we focus on who Jesus is and what he has done for us, our healths melt and we want to be with him. Who is Jesus Christ? We just saw this last week when Pastor Micah was preaching the wonderful thing, Revelation chapter one. John on the island of Patmos in prison, brutal prison camp, and Jesus, the veil pulls back from heaven and earth, and he sees a vision of Christ himself. And John struggles to put what he sees into human language, but he says this in verse 14 of chapter one. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His voice was like the roar of many waters. His face was like the sun shining in full strength, not just half strength sun, like the full strength of the sun was the face of Christ. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. This is the unmitigated, the unrestrained, the no longer hidden glory of Christ. The holiness of Christ. The word glory, kavod, it means the weightiness, the significance to be in the presence of the glory of Christ in our sins is to be overwhelmed as a human being. It is a crushing thing. And John is driven to the ground as though he were a dead man in the presence of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do? He says, that's right, John, you should squirm. That's right, you should be dead in my holy presence because of your sin no what does Jesus do it says that he laid his right hand on me saying fear not oh John I love you I am the first and the last I am the living one I died John, you were there. I died for you. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And it's something in this dichotomy, it's something in this contrast between the glory of Christ, that he is more powerful than we could ever imagine. He is more holy than we could ever possibly conceive. He would be in our sinfulness. He is more terrifying then we would dare imagine. And at the same time, he is more tender and loving. He lays his hand, don't be afraid, it's okay. The same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. And he picks them up and he holds them and blesses them. It's that same Jesus who one day, Revelation chapter 21, will reach out and look you right in the face, right in the eyes, and wipe every tear from your face. Have you ever wiped someone's tear away? How tender, how intimate. That's Jesus. 
Look at what God has done for you, that he would die, he would suffer. He punched a hole through the walls of reality, became that little, God became a baby. God still is wounded for you. Look at what God has done for you. He doesn't run and remain something extra you add to your life or a little bit of a, you know, salt there on top of the real meal of your life. He doesn't want to simply be a butler to you. He doesn't want simply to be an idea or a concept. He wants you, and he wants you to love how much he loves you. And one last thing. My wife Lee and I, we just celebrated on Friday our 15th wedding anniversary. Some of you say, big deal. <laughs> Call me when it's a real number. <laughs> but we went out and had, it was just wonderful, 15 years, and Lee and I both talking, and we know that not everyone has this for whatever reason, but we love each other more today. And we like each other more today than we did even 15 years ago when we said, I do. Despite the fact that we know so much about one another, what is dating? Da let me, dating is, dating is tricking the person into marrying you. <laughs> I see some, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I know the worst, some of the worst things about Leah. She knows some of the worst things about me. And yet we love and like each other even more. It seemed like it would be the opposite. How is that? Why is that? And I think maybe because you know just what it would be if we lost one another. But also it's just time, intentional time. It would be so easy to pass as ships in the night, but to make the time, to take the time, to go on a date, to sit, glass of wine, have a conversation. Yes, gentlemen, you have to listen <laughs> and say things like, that must be so hard. I want you to know I hear you <laughs> and I'm not trying to solve the problem. I learned that 14 and a half years ago. But if that's true of our marriages or our friendships or our, any of our relationships, how much truer is that with Jesus? To take time to talk to him and listen to him and to see him and to hear him as Jesus speaks. To him be all the glory. Amen.